three, two, one. Thank you, Clyde Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 430th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I'm brought to you today in part by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the super popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. This morning, we were going to report on news that CMS is now making it easier for kids to be vaccinated, vaccinated by state licensed pharmacists. But instead, Terry Fletcher is going to be reporting that effective today, a positive COVID-19 test will be needed in the patient's record for the 20% additional reimbursement. Big news, right? Yes, that is certainly big news. And talking about big news, Stanley Nicholson returns with his Reg Watch segment today. And also on the broadcast this morning is Grant Wong. Grant is substituting for Shannon DeConda. He'll have an update on the 2021 E&M guidelines. A lot of big changes coming, as you're going to hear from Grant later in the broadcast. And also, Carrie Greenwood is substituting for Lori Johnson, and we'll have the Talk 10 Tuesdays coding report. Lots of news there. Indeed. And you have a talk back segment this morning. What is on your radar screen? Well, I have a follow-up from last week that calls into question the validity of widespread COVID testing. Mm, looking forward to hearing your segment. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by MedLearn Publishing, reminding you that 2021 is just around the corner, and MedLearn Publishing has the up-to-date resources to guide you through coding, billing, and compliance in the new year. Order before September 30th and save 15% on your 2021 MedLearn Publishing resources using the code REN1521 at checkout. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And with Medicare hospital rate setting, it all's financial. How does CMS set rates for acute care and long-term acute care hospitals? It turns out that it really comes down to the overall hospital cost-to-charge ratios. When CMS published the most recent rule, similar to past proposed rules, it published some of the data files that tells us we used as sources. This year, the data sources come primarily from Medicare cost reports for fiscal year 2018. Included in the data are census data from worksheet S3, salary and other costs from worksheet A, allocations of overhead costs on worksheet B, cost charge ratios on worksheet C, routine costs per patient day on worksheet D, balance sheet information on worksheet G, summary patient revenue on worksheet G2, and finally net income from worksheet G3. I am concerned that using the 2018 data and not trying to adjust the data for the slump in census from the COVID-19 pandemic is just one more blow to hospitals. The average 
cost to charge, cost to provide care for hospitals must be separated between fixed, semi-variable, and variable costs to understand the blow. Hospitals have certain fixed costs like depreciation utilities that do not fluctuate with demand. There are semi-variable costs like salaries. When staffing cuts are based on lower volumes, it can take time and it may not be possible or practical uh, to make sharp cuts. And then there are variable costs like supplies. Hospitals are simply not able to cut fixed costs and when volumes fall because of something like COVID. They can only slowly cut semi-variable costs. The average cost per discharge has been dramatically different during COVID than before COVID. Hospitals will not benefit from the higher cost for discharge until the 2019 data is used in next year's update. Hospitals and the public should push for real adjustments that reflect the higher cost for discharge in a market basket increase. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's September the 1st, and you're listening to the 430th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Buried in the thousands of pages of the 2021 IPPS Final Rule are details that are critical to your organization's financial health. Register now for a three-part series on the many changes to the ICD-10 CMPCS code sets and updates to guidelines, designations, and methodology. With so much to digest, you'll appreciate the guidance, instruction, and insights provided by nationally renowned ICD-10 coding expert Lori Johnson during this upcoming webcast series. Count on Lori to help you master crucial details in the final rule, including new concepts, codes, designations, and MSDRG changes. Make sure you and your team are ready and confident on October 1st. Register now to attend 2021 IPS Final Rule webcast series, Three Programs to Improve Your Performance. Part 1 begins Tuesday, September 15th. Register now. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday's coding report is Carrie Greenwood, who's substituting this morning for Lori Johnson. And good morning, Carrie. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning, Chuck. Although the 2021 IPPS rule has not been finalized, the proposed rule outlines the guideline changes that are likely to be implemented for ICD-10-CM and PCS. Today's report is an overview of what's in store come October 1st. For ICD-10-CM, there are 14 new and 8 revised guidelines. 13 of the new guidelines, not surprisingly, provide direction related to the coding and reporting of COVID-19 infection, with the additional new guideline providing direction for coding of vaping-related disorders. 11 of the new COVID-19 guidelines are being added to Chapter 1, Certain Infectious and Parasitic Diseases, with new guidelines for coding of COVID-19 infection in pregnancy, childbirth, and the purpurium, and in newborns, being added to Chapters 15 and 16, respectively. Two notable guideline revisions include language being added to General Coding Guideline 1B14, documentation by clinicians other than the patient's provider, specifying that self-reported documentation may also be used to assign codes for social determinants of health, as long as the information is signed off by and incorporated into the health record by either a clinician or provider. And additions to Guideline 1C4A3, diabetes mellitus, and the use of insulin and oral hypoglycemics to now include injectable non-insulin drugs, which has implications regarding the assignment of long-term drug use Z-codes when a patient is being treated with both insulin and injectable non-insulin drugs. In ICD-10 PCS, there were two new guidelines added and two guidelines revised for 2021. 
three of the updates are being made to Section B3, which are the guidelines for root operations, and a new guideline is being added to Section B5, Approach. New guideline B3.18, excision or resection, followed by replacement, relates to replacement of body parts once the natural body part has been excised or resected. The guideline indicates both procedures should be reported so each distinct objective is captured, except when the excision or resection is considered integral and preparatory for the replacement procedure, such as in total joint replacement. The new approach guideline, B25 or B2.5B, clarifies that when incisions, that for incisions made to insert an endoscope that are extended to assist in removal of all or a portion of a body part, the appropriate approach value for the procedure is still percutaneous endoscopic. For a full review of the 2021 updates, be sure to check out the previously mentioned 2021 IPPS Final Rule Coding Webcast Series featuring Lori Johnson. Over to you, Erica. Thanks, Carrie. That was great. That was Carrie Greenwood. Carrie is an independent coding consultant and was substituting for Lori Johnson. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Carrie, thank you very much for sitting in this morning for Lori Johnson. Now is the time for the RegWatch segment featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Nockerson. And good morning, Stanley. Welcome to the broadcast. A lot of news coming out of Washington these days. What do we need to know, Stanley? Uh, good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. We've got a whirlwind of activity from CMS with uh, proposing new requirements, eliminating others, and changing a whole set of rules. First, the outpatient prospective payment system proposed rule, which was published on August 4th, indicates a major shift in Medicare from inpatient to outpatient in ambulatory surgical center care. CMS is proposing to eliminate the inpatient-only list, which is the list of procedures that can only be performed in inpatient settings, over a three-year transitional period with the list completely phased out by calendar year 2024. CMS is also proposing to expand the number of procedures that Medicare would pay for when they were performed in an ambulatory surgical center. So they're really looking to shift care out of the inpatient side of hospitals. CMS is also proposing a reduction in payments for 340B drugs, adopting a rate of the average selling price minus 35% with a 6% add-on amount for overhead and handling cost for a net proposed rate of average selling price minus 28.7% for the separately payable drugs or biologicals acquired through the 340B program. I also want to point out that we still have no hospital inpatient final rule. Uh, we would expect that uh, almost momentarily. Apparently there's a major policy issue that the department is still wrestling with that's preventing them from getting it out uh, uh, on a more timely basis. CMS has also extended the test period for the appropriate use criteria program. This is a requirement for physicians ordering complex radiology tests like MRIs to consult a decision support tool to confirm medical necessity. The ordering physician then must notify the performing provider who submits that confirmation on the claims for service. The current test period for this was scheduled to end this year and claims were to be denied if they didn't have that confirmation starting January 1st, 2021. However, that date has now been extended to January 1st, 2022, easing a little bit of burden on, on physicians and other providers regarding radiology tests. 
CMS is also advising state Medicaid agencies they should seriously consider using existing state and federal investments in health information exchanges to implement the new interoperability requirements. Those are the requirements to provide uh, specific data to individuals and to other providers on a almost as an on an immediate basis through the use of application program interfaces. This should assist state Medicaid agencies um, in meeting these requirements. And then a new CMS rule that ties COVID-19 data reporting to Medicare participation. An interim final rule was released by CMS earlier this week mandating that in order to participate in Medicare and Medicaid, hospitals must report daily COVID-19 data to the federal government. This rule from CMS that was released August 25th announced sweeping regulatory changes that also require nursing homes to test staff and offer testing to residents for COVID-19, as well as requiring that laboratories and nursing homes use point-of-care testing devices to report diagnostic test results. Now, this is, of course, in addition to the recent requirements for documenting a positive COVID-19 test for hospitals to get the additional 20% payment for a COVID patient uh, which Terry Fletcher will be talking about in a few minutes. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Stanley. And I'm going to be talking about that point of care testing at the uh, assisted living and long-term care facilities. Thank you, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Stanley, thank you very much. And I want to apologize to you and our listeners. Uh, for a remark that I made several weeks ago when we were reporting on documentation of testing for COVID-19 coding, I said it's always about the money. Of course, asserting that CMS makes decisions, quote, all about the money has no place here on Talk to Tuesdays, and I apologize. We pride ourselves on giving you facts and presenting you with news and information, along with the advice on how to best document and code, and so I apologize. A new rule from CMS is effective today, September the 1st. It's important, and you'll know all about it in just 60 seconds. This is Talk in Tuesday. Stand by. Take control of your ICD-10 CM coding for COVID-19 cases with the help of at-a-glance flowcharts from ICD-10 Monitor. Developed in collaboration with Dr. Eric Reamer, these exciting charts now feature a new ICD-10 CM coding flowchart for preoperative testing plus updates to reflect the latest guidance from CDC and AHA, as well as proper coding for 2021. These exclusive COVID-19 flowcharts are designed to provide quick guidance to accurate, compliant code assignments while boosting coder productivity. Don't let the uncertainties and high volume of COVID-19 cases undermine your ICD-10-CM coding. Order these unique at-a-glance coding flowcharts to guide you quickly to the correct compliant diagnosis codes. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, a new rule from CMS is effective today. It's big news, and Terry Fletcher has the details. Good morning, Terry. What's going on? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, today is September 1st, and CMS and HHS should be using the catchphrase, rent is due, with the timing of certain reimbursement rules and CARES Act repayments now due. As you know, if you applied and were approved for an accelerated or advanced payment for Medicare, many of those loans are now due and checks are going to be starting to be offset this month. CMS also started rolling out post-payment audits again last month and the focus on telehealth. And with the stack on my desk from certain NACs, there will be widespread refunds. Now today, again effective today, September 1st, CMS has enlisted a mandate requiring hospitals have positive COVID-19 laboratory tests in patient records 
to qualify for Medicare's 20% add-on payment. The 20% bonus to the DRG, this is a 20% bonus to the DRG and does not affect the patient liability, which continues to be Part A in patient deductible. The new mandate, Medlar Matters number SE20015, which CMS said seeks to address, quote, potential Medicare program integrity risk, applies to admissions beginning September 1st. Until now, CMS guidance has said that a provider's documentation, but not necessarily a provider's positive test, is sufficient to receive the 20% higher reimburse, Medicare reimbursement for inpatient COVID treatment. CMS has said they will continue to apply the 20% add-on payment for COVID-19-related claims after the final rule takes effect, but there will be post-payment audits and reviews to enforce this requirement, a sort of a post-oversight, if you will, and the 20 percent extra will be recouped if no positive test result is found. This will no doubt be a problem, not only from an administrative burden on hospitals and physician practices if they are participating, but the fact that COVID-19 tests have become more widely available and many hospital systems have treated thousands of patients who may have tested positive at some point during the pandemic, but then had several repeated tests to get a negative result or repeated tests if initially testing positive but were asymptomatic. This continued, could, could, could continue to be the protocol after September 1st. The American Hospital Association is asking CMS to reconsider this new requirement. I haven't seen it be heard. I'm thinking it's falling on deaf ears since it did become effective today. The lobbying group contended in a letter to CMS Administrator Seema Verna last Wednesday that requiring test results would put a substantial administrative burden on hospitals and documentation and provider documentation should continue to suffice. Their argument also stood and fell back on CDC ICD-10 coding and reporting advice, the COVID diagnosis code on clinical judgment alone in line with the coding rules continues to be an important approach given that the test accuracy may not be as reliable or retesting is unnecessarily erroneous and some communities face persistent testing shortage. Another argument, as Dr. Reamer mentioned to me this morning, could be that if government is now forcing hospitals to have a positive test in the record, to get the 20% bump, then treating providers may stop making diagnoses of COVID-19 purely on a clinical basis, but will have to obtain tests on patients who they know have COVID-19, but are being made to prove it with a test. It may require multiple tests because a negative may be a false negative, and the provider needs to, uh, that positive test to be paid appropriately. Again, according to the new rule, and it's SC20015, implemented under the provisions of the CARES Act, Positive tests, and this is a quote, must be demonstrated using only test results of viral testing, that's the molecular antigen, consistent with CDC guidelines. The test may be performed either during the hospital admission or prior to the hospitalization, or prior to the hospital admission. But what needs to be mentioned as well, as I was reminded by Dr. Hirsch this morning, is that the COVID test is terribly imperfect, and the patient who has a negative test but has classic findings on CT scan, for example, with hypoxemia or leukopenia has COVID and will be treated for COVID and will not be sent home and told that they don't have it. But how will that scenario affect this new rule that a positive lab test must be in the record for the 20% bump? Also in this mandate, I find it interesting that there won't be any or there wasn't any comment about allowing for defense of the medical record by the facility or the provider. The new rule goes on to say that CMS may conduct post-payment medical reviews to confirm the presence of a positive COVID-19 lab test. And if no such test is contained in the medical record, the additional payment resulting from the 20% increase in the MSDRG relative weight will be recouped. 
So this means there could be offset payments instead of a request for a refund, but it's too soon to tell how they're going to handle that refund process. AHA also did go on to argue that in some cases, hospitals may have to dedicate considerable time and effort trying to get a test result from third-party providers and manually enter them into the medical record. This rule may at some point extend to some physician practices. I did bring this up at a CMS office hours called recently and was told to submit that question in writing to CMS for a written response. That tells me that they need to research that for future for the potential of possible effect to providers. This is a story to keep an eye on in the coming months and we have included a complete link for that rule in my article today that will be updated this morning. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Terry. I think it's always um, a challenge for uh, people to be telling doctors how they have to be practicing medicine. I think that doctors need to make sure that they take care of the patients, and if they don't have their positive test and they don't end up with that 20% bump, it is what it is. Um, thanks, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional coder and auditor Terry Fletcher. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Terry. Uh, you can read Terry's excellent analysis of this new rule in today's edition of ICD-10 Monitor News. Our Tuesday focuses on the 2021 E&M changes, of which there are plenty. With an update, here is Grant Huang. Good morning, Grant. A lot of changes and the deadline's fast approaching. What do we need to know? Morning, Chuck. First, let me say that the changes are definitely happening. We've seen the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule proposed rule for next year, and there's no provision there to delay or cancel the changes. So to recap, for office outpatient E&M codes 99202 to 99215, remember that 99201 will be deleted, CPT is removing the key components of history and exam as factors in determining the E&M level. Instead, it's going to be either medical decision-making or total time spent. And remember that time spent in 2021 will include not just face-to-face -face time, but also non-face-to-face -face time spent on the same date of service, including time spent on tasks such as preparing for the visit, care coordination, and so forth. New rules also eliminate the requirement that a majority of the time must be counseling-oriented. Now, I got to ask CMS some questions on a recent open door call, and their responses should throw a little cold water on the idea that the new rules are a green light to start skipping big chunks of E&M documentation. First, there's a lot of hype on the elimination of the history and exam as key components, but you can't just ignore them next year because the new rules say that a medically appropriate history and exam must be documented, and CMS agrees that medically appropriate is the new bar. In the words of Ann Marshall, CMS technical advisor, and I quote, if you didn't include a history and exam and an auditor is looking at the record, if you could show that the history and exam were not medically necessary, then that would be okay. But I can't tell you how any individual decision will be made, and it's probably on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, I can tell you that whenever CMS says something is on a case-by-case -case basis, you've got a solid case for being cautious in terms of compliance. E&M notes still need to demonstrate medical necessity, and there's a risk that having minimal history and exam could detract from the medical necessity picture. Second, some folks believe that the elevation of time as a decisive factor means you can throw the rest of the guidelines out the window whenever you document the time spent. But CMS says that medical necessity rules still apply. Again, from Ms. Marshall of CMS, I quote, Medicare law has some general language saying that all of the services that are paid need to be medically reasonable and necessary. So I think that's not something we can just dispense with in terms of judging whether time was needed or not. She went on to say that CMS will be having further conversations with their auditors 
about how they're going to look at time going forward. So simply documenting time may not save an otherwise skimpy note that's being billed as 99205. Time is not going to be a silver bullet in 2021. And if I were a betting man, I'd put my money on time-based E&M documentation suddenly emerging as a top OIG target in 2022. The bottom line is that the new rules are not a license to go wild with documentation shortcuts. And now I'll turn it over to Erica. Grant, I couldn't agree more. As I always say, practice excellent medicine, do good documentation, and everything, the, the quality and the reimbursement should fall where it belongs. Thanks, Grant. That was Grant Wong. Grant is the Director of Content for Doctors Management. And uh, Erica, thanks for that comment. Grant, thanks for uh, being with us this morning. Appreciate it. Now it's time for a very popular segment here at Talk Ten Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your radar screen? Well, Chuck, the plot, plot thickens. You may remember that August 18th, my father tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 by a saliva polymerase chain reaction, or PCR test. The results were turned August 23rd, and I was informed that evening. His assisted living went on lockdown, and we were all waiting to see if our loved ones would become symptomatic. On Wednesday, August 26th, I received a call from the, uh, the assisted living administrator requesting permission to retest my dad with an intranasal swab test. There were multiple residents and staff whose tests were positive, and they had a concern that the original tests were false positives. Three people had already been retested, and they were negative. The administrator expressed frustration at the inability to procure, procure sufficient supplies to do the follow-up nasal or nasopharyngeal testing. The original Novadex test had been supplied by the government to all long-term facilities, he reported. It seemed unlikely that multiple elderly patients, who likely have some high-risk comorbid conditions, would all have been asymptomatic. Up until now, we had been under the impression that the PCR tests have few false positives, that false negatives are the real issue. However, the tests had been validated on symptomatic patients. A false negative means a person goes about their business thinking they are not infected or infectious. They can expose other people unknowingly. The implication of a false positive is different. First, it is insanely difficult to prove that a false positive is false, especially in the case of an asymptomatic patient. Cultures for SARS-CoV-2 are not done. The PCR test is considered the gold standard. If there is a lag time of eight days for retesting, like in the case of my dad, who's to say that the first one couldn't have been a true positive and the follow-up test was just the natural clearing of the virus. We know there are significant numbers of false negatives. How do you know that the second PCR test isn't the incorrect one? If a patient is believed to be infected with the coronavirus, they must quarantine and limit their exposure to others. For 14 days, all the residents are cooped up in their apartments again. They eat their meals there. All the activities are on hold. They don't go outside. They don't have familial visits. Anyone who has been in contact with the person believed to be positive has to quarantine as well. My father's healthcare system demands a 28-day lag between a positive test and being able to be seen in person, which leaves him at risk for his other ailments. If the long-term facility, 
or a school for that matter, is doing routine asymptomatic testing. What do they do if quality control issues persist and there repeatedly are false positives? Do they undergo serial perpetual quarantine? Quarantine or isolation has real costs too. Without socialization, these elderly residents are losing mental faculties. Without school, kids and parents are losing their minds. Since you can't really tell who has a false positive, statistics will be skewed. Sorry, will be skewed. The per capita death rate is falsely lowered. Inpatient, false positives mean the difference between the COVID-19 unit or not. If they don't really have the disease, they might after being exposed on the unit during their hospitalization. Also, remember, as Terry said, Medicare pays an additional 20% if there is a positive test result on the chart. What if it's a false positive? How did we get here? Tests, similar to the vaccines in development, were hastily thrown into production. Emergency use authorization, or EUAs, are being handed out like candy on Halloween in 2019. I found an article on the Internet from June 18th which uncovered abnormally high numbers of positive results from Novadex in nursing homes in Texas in early June. They were written off as an isolated incident involving a specific batch of tubes and transport solution. So why are they still being distributed? My dad's test returned negative, and the residents have been released. More needs to be done to improve the national testing and the tests. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. A number of questions came in this morning. We're not going to have time to answer them during this live broadcast, but we will make every effort to answer them this week. And one more thing before we go. As you know, the presidential election is coming up. It's November 3rd. So if you haven't already, today would be a good day to register to vote in the upcoming election. And a programming note, there won't be a Tucked In Tuesday next Tuesday, but we will return on September the 15th. In the meantime, uh, you can listen to all the Talked In Tuesdays podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for IC10 Monitor and Talked In Tuesdays. Thank you very much for being with us, and be sure to wear your face mask, everyone. <laughs>